You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Esha. Today, we have Brian Berletic from the New Atlas here to talk to us about Thailand, Myanmar, and the U.S. strategy for destroying China and possibly any hope of progress we have on climate change. Thank you for joining us. And thank you for uh, inviting me. For me, uh, it was very informative reading some of your articles, I guess. Are you Tony Cardalucci or something? Or is that a different author in your website? No, that was, uh, I actually have a couple of pen names, uh, Tony Cardalucci, uh, Joseph Thomas, and Gunnar Olsen. The reason why was because I was a very prolific writer. And I was anonymous for about 10 years. And then I kind of had to come out with my real name because uh, Facebook, Twitter, they all censored me. And then the U.S. embassy here in Bangkok was like uh, they were coming out with official statements saying that my work was all lies because I was saying they were backing the protests, which, of course, they were just like in Hong Kong. So I, I felt like it was better for my safety to just come out under my real name. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? So you were in the military and you moved to Thailand and you have a really nice website called The New Atlas. I love it. It's so informative. So what made you start that? Well, I joined the Marines when I was 17 years old, wow. right out of high school. Uh, I was in almost four years. Your, your contract is four years. But even as I was in, I started to, to become disillusioned. Uh, and this was 9-11 happened. So I, I, I joined in 2000 and then 9-11 happened. And at first we were all eager to go, but they never sent us. My unit never went. I was in Japan almost the entire time I was in the military. And as time went by, I started to like do a lot of research because uh, at the time I, I thought, oh, these, these terrorists are really dangerous. And you know what Sun Tzu in The Art of War says, know yourself and know your enemy. So I read the Quran and then I, I realized all of these Quran verses that the, the Western media was cherry picking, they were all out of context and we were all being lied to. So it was like a, a light bulb that went off and I started really trying to dig in and figure out what was going on. By the time they started getting ready to invade Iraq, I wanted nothing to do with the military, even though... Uh, my my job was fixing ad advanced weapons, so I was never going to be in combat, but I didn't want to participate or contribute in even the slightest way. So I refused to train and I got out like maybe six months before my contract was up. And, and the people there, they said, we, we understand why you're doing this. Uh, why don't you just finish your six months and get your benefits and then you can get out? And I, I said, no, I, I cannot. I cannot do this for one more day. So uh, I got out and then I went, I went to Thailand because in Japan, you will deploy from Okinawa to the mainland mm -hmm. and you would also go to places like the Philippines and Thailand. So I, I, I liked Thailand a lot and I wanted to go back there. Was it hard to learn the language and culture or was it easy? Um, I think, I think the language is pretty, pretty easy. Uh, it's, it's a lot easier than learning Chinese because... <laughs> They have a they have like a, a script with with letters that make sounds, so it's, ah. it's a lot easier to learn how to read. For for Chinese, you have to memorize a lot of characters, so I, I think it's like a little bit easier to to learn that. And plus, you you hear it every day. 
and you want to talk to people. So you, you know, you start picking it up over time. That's very cool. So I was wondering if we could touch upon the pro-democracy <laughs> protest in Thailand, which I didn't know until I was listening to your YouTube site last night. Just briefly so that people know are aware of it, but then I want to get deeply into the Myanmar. Is that okay? Sure. So because they're all actually they're all connected. Okay. So when you when you hear the Western media say pro-democracy, it's a war, a warning bell should go off. I think they're usually fascist. <laughs> yeah, it's usually the exact opposite. So what happened was Uh, the U.S. has been trying to get proxy regimes into each and every country in Southeast Asia because they want to encircle and contain China. So in Thailand, they had this billionaire tax in Chinawat. They wanted him in power. And in 2001, he was in power. A uh, military coup ousted him in 2006. Uh, then he had some, he himself had some proxy regimes where he, he fled the country as a fugitive, but he was still de facto running it from like a hotel room in Dubai with full support of the U.S. And, and if you read the Western media about Thailand, they never mention any of this. But if you look it up, you'll, you'll see that it, that is indeed the case. His sister was running the country for a while, then she got ousted in a military coup in 2014. And these protests are just uh, the, the remnants of this Western-backed opposition trying to either get into power or just destabilize the country so that the country's relationship with China is Uh, complicated or, or rolled back. And Thailand now has a very extensive relationship with China, very, very deep and extensive. And the U.S. wants to reverse this. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay. So it sounds a lot like the Hong Kong <laughs> pro-democracy protest. It's, exa it's exactly, exactly like that. As a matter of fact, the protest leaders here, and I use that term loosely because they're, they're kids, And they're told what to do. Mm -hmm. They're they're getting marching orders. Uh, the one, his name is Netowit. He actually tried to invite Joshua Wong to Thailand. Mm -hmm. uh, Joshua Wong is that that um, that kid in Hong Kong leading, you know, quote unquote, leading the protests there. And the Thai government blocked him at the airport and sent him back to Hong Kong. Uh, they openly aligned themselves with the protesters in Hong Kong and also in Myanmar. And also the independence movement in Taiwan, they call themselves the Milk Tea Alliance. Twitter. Oh boy, yes. <laughs> Twitter even rolled out an, a, an official emoji supporting the Milk Tea Alliance, if that tells people anything. Uh, so this, yeah, this is what's going on. They're not very subtle about the whole racial thing either with the Milk Tea Alliance. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's very interesting because... Most people don't understand what a color revolution is. It's a hard thing to understand. And the thing about it is that wasn't Myanmar one of the first experiments in 1988? 88, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So so the, the, the protests in 1988 kind of were like, one of these proto-color revolutions. They had some in the 80s and 90s in Eastern Europe. It was all very similar, the same sort of networks backing them. Uh, and, and then the leaders of those protests then, now they're kind of like middle-aged to older now, and they are part of the opposition now in Myanmar, trying to uh, fight against the, the military and central government. So 
what the U.S. was doing then is what they are trying to do now. And this was all about encircling China. So even back then? Oh, yes. Um, I like to show people this document from the U.S. State Department's Office of the Historian, and it's dated 1965. And they openly say that at the time, the Vietnam War, they, they said it only makes sense to continue waging this war if it's part of the wider longstanding strategy to encircle China. So even in 1965, that was a longstanding strategy the U.S. was pursuing. And they mentioned Southeast Asia, uh, the Korea and Japanese front, and the Pakistan-India front as the, the three main fronts the U.S. was working on in 1965 to encircle and contain China. So everything we've seen over de actually decades, and we say, well, the 1988 protests look very similar to the ones now, and, and they're starting to get violent. It's because it's the exact same process with the, the exact same institutions, more or less, backing them. I had Ben Norton on earlier where he, a few months ago. He talked about this organization that, unfortunately, a lot of people don't know much about. It's called the National Endowment for Democracy. Can you just quickly review what it is and what it does? Okay, so the, the National Endowment for Democracy is basically the U.S. government's regime change funding arm. It was created in the 1980s. It was announced by President Ronald Reagan. Uh, it is funded annually by the U.S. Congress, and it is overseen by the U.S. Congress and the U.S. State Department. So when you go to their website and they say that they're independent, that's complete nonsense. They are completely beholden to the government. They are overseen by the government. The people on the board of directors uh, range from people who have like, you know, like the uh, revolving door, they go from the government to uh, something like the National Endowment for Democracy and then back again, or they're just outright warmongers and re regime change specialists, people like Elliot Abrams, a war criminal, yep. and, and also uh, uh, inveterate uh, regime change and warmonger. Uh, he's on the board of directors of the National Endowment for Democracy right now. So that should give people an idea of what this organization actually does. Not spreading democracy, they are engaged in regime change behind the smokescreen of promoting democracy. I've always explained to people how when you have capitalism and democracy, people will always vote to not be exploited. And then the U.S. will be like, eh, no, 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 you can't do that. That's too much democracy. And that's when it, it'll always contradict. And it's hard for people to understand how it's a... Uh, incompatible, especially in most third world countries. Oh, sorry. If I, I use third world because I hate the sanitized global south because people don't understand the destitution. <laughs> so how did Aung San Suu Kyi come to prominence in 1988? It seems like her dad was, uh, I guess, killed by the British, maybe. But that's when she came to prominence, right? Well, the, the story about her, I mean, she she studied in the West. She mm -hmm. worked in New York City for the UN. Mm. She had a British husband. She has two British citizens as children. Uh, so and, and when she speaks, she speaks in almost perfect English with a British accent. And so, I mean, I, I don't understand how people could could see any of that. Just just that face value and, and not think there might be more to, to her background and, and what her true intentions are towards Myanmar, uh, because 
she was groomed from from then all the way until now to be the the head of the client regime to power in Myanmar, and and she still is there. There chose her and her political party is the chosen client regime by the U.S. to to run Myanmar. They're working to get them back into power. Uh, so uh, it's just a very long process of undermining Myanmar's indigenous institutions and replacing them or kind of overriding them with these NED. And then there's also uh, convicted financial criminal George Soros and his open society. They dump millions and millions of dollars into Myanmar, well, the entire region, but also Myanmar, uh, to overwrite uh, the, the institutions in Myanmar, create kind of a parallel state within Myanmar. Ah. Uh, to serve Western interests. So, so that is that is how her and her party rose to, to power. They have control over education because it's just a, an endless torrent of money being dumped into everything. They get into the universities, they get into the media, they get into all, all of civil society. It's like a disease that is just spread to every, every aspect of the uh, sociopolitical uh, you know, foundation of Myanmar. And now we see the results. It's it's just constant strife and division. The military has a very hard time asserting itself over their own country because of this. And we see the division and the violence now. And, and it has actually been ongoing for, for a long time. It, I don't think there has ever been a time where Myanmar uh, post-independence has been stable and prosperous. I can't ever remember as far as I grew up. Um, and... I guess a lot of people don't understand it's not one ethnic country. It's kind of like India in that there's thousands or hundreds. <laughs> yes, there's there's a lot of different ethnic groups. And when and when it was because maybe people don't know, Myanmar used to be a British colony. It was British Burma. And what the British did, and they did this very deliberately, they identified all these ethnic minorities. Uh, they folded them into the colonial army. They put them uh, into positions of power in the, the local administration. And they excluded the uh, Burman ethnic majority. And this bred great resentment. And they, inf they were infighting. And this is part of the divide and conquer. When, Bur uh, well, it was Burma and then it became Myanmar. When they gained independence, this was in 1948. Uh, that's after 63 years of colonization by the British Empire, uh, the British didn't just say, okay, you win, mm -hmm. you can have your country, we'll leave. No, they didn't. And, and the US was already interfering at that point. They started investing in these ethnic minority groups and perpetuating the, the fault lines, the ethnic fault lines in the country to keep it divided, to keep them in fighting so that they would never be able to uh, consolidate control over the whole country and then move forward. Like, many of the other countries have in the region. That's actually, I mean, I wish I could say I'm surprised, but that's the typical playbook. So in the U.S. media, they give an impression that there was like some kind of dictatorship in 1988 and there was like some kind of emergency rule. And then they talk about how Aung San Suu Kyi was imprisoned sometime in, in 1990 for, quote unquote, her political opinions. Are they telling the true story or is there more to it? 
Well, I, I clearly, Aung San Suu Kyi is an agent of foreign interference, and so is her National League for Democracy political party. Uh, if you look at this so-called national unity government that the opposition created after the military ousted her in February of this year, almost every single one of the most prominent uh, ministers they have their own like they, they have their own little NGO that the U.S. government was funding. They're all recipients of, of U.S. and British money. So when the military is locking these people up, it's because they are they're for they're literal foreign agents, not not in the sense that the U.S. accuses everyone <laughs> of uh, being Russian, speaking ill of them as being, you know, <laughs> as being foreign. These are actual foreign agents. So, uh, one thing that people don't understand when the military arrested Aung San Suu Kyi, they also ended up arresting an Australian economist named Sean Turnell. And when I heard about this, I was like, that that sounds like you need you need to investigate that he was a, an Australian economist. He was her advisor, her her in her inner circle, advising her on economic and trade policy while she was state counselor of Myanmar as as the de facto head of state. So, would it be like having Joe Biden having an Argentine to be the Secretary of Treasury? Is that a good analogy? Uh, yes, or yes, or like uh, if. You know, they were saying Donald Trump had all these Russian mm -hmm. uh, connections. It would be like just Russians openly hanging out with him in the Oval Office all the time. Uh, she had a British citizen, Robert Sanpei. The provision section 59F in the Constitution is very bizarre in the way it's drafted. It goes far beyond what one would expect to see in terms of ensuring that a president owes his allegiance to a country. I would also say that Doran San Suu Kyi has shown her strong allegiance to this country through the personal sacrifice she has had to endure. There's a lot of things that need to be done differently. And one of those is just the, the actual training that lawyers and judges undergo. So. Uh, we had moved to a situation here where a lot of lawyers and judges can recite black letter law, but they can't analyze it. Lawyers cannot advise clients on how to proceed in a strategic manner. Um, judges don't know how to make independent decisions. They're too used to being told what to do. So of course, the first step is to identify people who are able to develop and learn, keen to do so. And you know, that's something we are doing right now. We have a number of different programs underway uh, that are providing both judges and lawyers with practical skills. He was helping her rewrite the constitution for the whole, for the whole country. She had uh, another British advisor, Joseph Fisher, he had previously worked in the British embassy in Myanmar. And then at the same time he was her advisor, he was concurrently working for the British Foreign Office. So she was surrounded. She was surrounded by these foreigners who were basically running the country with her just as, you know, the Myanmar mask of what was like a, a modern day colonial administration, just, just kind of running the country. And uh, people, people say, well, wasn't she signing deals with China? I thought she was pro-China. No, she's not pro-China. She spent decades, her and her movement spent decades trying to block Myanmar, China uh, development all over the country. The Misson Dam, that was Aung San Suu Kyi leading those protests that blocked that. Can you slow down for a second? I don't think people are too familiar. 
So I've never covered this. So I just kind of want to go back to just a little basics. So sometime around 2009 or something, she was quote unquote uh, uh, free. And then there was a election around 2013. Am I getting the dates right or wrong? I think it was uh, 2016, but uh, I, I, I could, I could, yeah, it could be. 2016. Okay. Yeah. I knew it was at the end of the Obama era. And it seems like it was a kind of a strange election in that a lot of people didn't really vote, but somehow her party ended up winning for the first time. And then she couldn't be president, right? She had a special role created for her. Exactly. So what happened? Well, they're able to win the elections because, as I said, the National Endowment for Democracy pours millions and millions of dollars into the country, including into electoral processes, uh, election monitors, uh, groups that that train and, and cultivate opposition parties and, and show them how to campaign. Almost every aspect of their elections was tainted with this, this foreign interference uh, by the U.S. and also by the British. Uh, yes, she could not be president because she had a British citizen for a husband. He had passed away, but her, her two children are British citizens. So, of course, it, that would be kind of I think a lot of countries have laws like that where, you know, there's certain restrictions on who can hold the highest office. So when she when her party won, they just created state councilor. And she was the de facto leader. And as a matter of fact, if you read the Western media carefully, sometimes they will refer to her as de facto leader, but they'll never explain that. And they pretend like that that's democracy and the rule of law. Of course, it's not. It's just her taking taking control of the country and the people uh, who are coaching her and managing her taking control of the country. From my experience, whenever somebody is promoted in the U.S. press, it's usually because they want to do like a massive, massive privatization scheme. Uh, Was that her plan, too? It was, but it was going to be difficult because uh, if you look at the the trade between Myanmar and its top trade partners, its top trade partner is and has been China for the longest time, Thailand, uh, Japan, Singapore, these are Myanmar's main trade partners. For for something to to shift from that to what the U.S. would probably want to just ravage the country, it would it would have taken some time. And so that's why Aung San Suu Kyi was, you know, still signing things with the Chinese government because the economy depends on China. If she were to just pull the plug, uh, the whole thing would would fall apart overnight. So she had to be very careful. It was going to be a slow pivot. But yes, eventually, that's what they were going to do. Ah, okay. so when I was listening to your interviews with Max Blumenthal, I got the impression that she was kind of doing what Mitch McConnell kind of did with Obama with the obstructionism where she'd sign a deal with China, but uh, there's always some kind of obstruction. Is that an accurate description? Yes. Yes, that's exactly what she would have done. And she wouldn't have had to do the obstruction herself because she has these armies of U.S. funded NGOs that will be more than happy to go out and take the heat for blocking projects, uh, protesting uh, the dams, especially these dams that China was building in Myanmar to give the country energy, you know, to power their cities. The, the U.S. would fund these fake NGOs. They, they admit it. I mean, you can see 
the funding on the NED's own official website, but there were also WikiLeaks cables where the U.S. Embassy admitted they were giving out grants to these anti-dam protesters. Uh, so that's what they're that's what they're doing. That's part of blocking the the Belt and Road Initiative that China's uh, trying to work on with all of its its neighbors. This is part of the strategy: is cutting the Belt and Road Initiative projects off and and rolling them back. And they use human rights, they use environmental issues, <laughs> but it's it's all empty when you when you really look at the issues. There probably does need to be oversight for these projects, but. That's not what these groups are doing. Their intention is to block it at all costs. And, and they're just using excuses uh, to do it. I got very suspicious of these um, protesters earlier this year when I saw them targeting exclusively Chinese state-owned factories. Like, they bombed three or four of them right at the bat. And I'm like, uh, this sounds kind of weird. Um, so that's where my red flag detector went off. But... Well, in America, it's called a coup. Um, can you talk a little bit about the strange elections that happened last year that we probably didn't entirely hear the truth about? Uh, well, again, I, the, the military was going to continue to lose elections no matter what they did, because the U.S. is pouring millions of dollars into the country to interfere in their elections. They're doing exactly in reality to Myanmar, what they were accusing Russia of doing <laughs> to the United States, only on a massive scale. Uh, I mean, I'm talking about they have organizations involved in absolutely everything. There, there's all kinds of evidence for this. Like I said, if you just go to the, the NED's official website and you go to where we work, regions, Asia, Burma, because they still call it Burma, they don't, they don't call it Myanmar. Oh, that's so racist. It's, uh, you know, like they do it just to spite them and they do it out in the open and, and most people don't even notice it. And you will see in the, the program descriptions that they are meddling in the elections and the electoral process. This is something that would be unthinkable for another country to do in the United States. And yet they do it not just in Myanmar. They do it here in Thailand. Uh, they were interfering in Hong Kong in a very similar way. And they, they do this all over the world. Yeah, they do it in Venezuela, Bolivia, name it. I mean, yes, absolutely. <laughs> we want to thank everyone who tuned in last week and pledged their donations for our fundraiser. We also want to deeply apologize for everyone's credit card numbers and personal information being printed in plain text format on Reddit. We didn't know. I swear. Also, the tote bags with our logos ended up being sourced from ISIS-K. Again, our apologies. But to be fair, their bid was lower. Also, oddly, the return address was for Langley. Still trying to square that circle. Anyways, please just go to historically.substack.com and subscribe. We need to avoid these in the future as our legal fees mount. Also, check out our YouTube, Twitch, and Rockfin streams. Esha reads you Lenin and drags the main villains of Twitter. It's good stuff. So what happened in February? Here they make it seem like an it's extrajudicial coup, but there is a provision in the Constitution. So can you talk about what happened? There is a provision in the Constitution, but also I think common sense should dictate if a political party is openly funded and backed by a foreign government. Uh, this is a threat to national sovereignty. The military's job is to defend the country against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And in this case, you have an alliance between foreign and domestic enemies. 
they ha really had no choice but to act. If they did not, this would see Aung San Suu Kyi, her political party, and this huge, massive, alternate, uh, uh, you know, actually many institutions parallel to Myanmar's institutions slowly take over the country. It was the recolonization of Myanmar. And this is something the British and the Americans had been doing since the end of World War II. The, the Vietnam War was fought because they were trying to reassert control over Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos. Uh, so this is the near completion of the recolonization of Myanmar until the military acted. So pe people need to keep that in mind. That's what was going on. That's why they acted. It wasn't just, oh, we, we want to keep holding power. Uh, we, we don't want to accept defeat in the elections. You, you can see, it's not hard to find. Just like I said, just go to the NED's website. You will see just, just that. And that's what they're admitting to. They're not, they're not telling you all the other programs they've got going. Indeed. So a lot of people kind of don't understand. In the U.S., when the right-wingers say it, it's actually just um, insanity. But in other countries, the biggest threat to their national security is the U.S. So how is Myanmar part of the Belt and Road Initiative and what is the U.S. government trying to obstruct? Okay, so there's there's a there's a lot of projects that China has been working on in Myanmar. They work on a lot of infrastructure projects like bridges and dams. I think we kind of touched on that a little bit. There was one bridge that they built over the Irrawaddy River near Mandalay. Before that, there was this old old British built bridge from from the colonial times. Trucks could not go over it, so trucks had to go over by ferry. This is extremely inefficient. So China built this new bridge, uh, and trucks are able to pass. So just think about how that is improving people's lives. These, these are projects that are improving people's lives and connecting the country together. Uh, they also have the Myanmar Chinese pipelines. These go from the south, southwest Rakhine State, uh, in, in Myanmar, all the way to Kunming in Yunnan, uh, China. And this is important because this is China's way of circumventing that long trip around Singapore through the Malacca Strait. They can just send hydrocarbons through Myanmar. And so this is what the U.S. was trying to disrupt, the pipelines, the bridges, the dams. And think about it. It's not just about foiling China's ambitions. They want to keep the country divided. So the best way to do that is to not allow the government to have proper infrastructure connecting everybody. Because once you do that and people start getting economic opportunities, you start draining the swamps uh, <laughs> that separatism you know, thrives in. Uh, when these people have economic opportunities, they don't, they don't want to keep taking USAID money and living in the jungle. They, they want to join the rest of society and, and work and build their nation. And this is what the U.S. wants to prevent. Uh, so there's, there's a couple of reasons why they're doing that. But the, the pipeline, I think, is the main part of the Belt and Road Initiative that they would like to block. Uh, it's already built. It's already in operation. Uh, but if they could disrupt it, uh, destroy it, or, or shut down the port and, and, or deny China access to the port, I think that would be a huge blow to China. And I think the U.S. would be very interested in trying that. I mean, yeah, I was reading the Council for Foreign Relations report on the Belt and Road Initiative. So not only did they admit that the U.S. is incapable of actually building, for example, the high-speed trains that China is building, 
But they literally admitted that A, China's loans are way different than the IMF structural adjustments. And every rational country where the government is acting in the best interest of the people should basically pick China's terms and conditions. So that was very illuminating to see the Council for Foreign Relations just admit that outright. And then you see this propaganda and concern trolling. So can you talk a little bit about her economic advisor, Sean Turnell, and how he kind of wanted to get Myanmar ensnared in the IMF trap? Yeah, well, he just basically just came out and said, we, we want to get Myanmar back into the IMF and World Bank. <laughs> and uh, it, he, he, he was writing op-eds about how, you know, all these projects Myanmar is, is working on with China, they're overpriced and they're debt traps. I mean, uh, he would go to Washington and report to the U.S. State Department. He was working with the with uh, actually he has a like a front in Myanmar, it's some development front, and it's funded by USAID. And he was an advisor to George Soros's Open Society. So he, he was basically just the economic handler for Aung San Suu Kyi. So just whatever they would think to ravage the country, that's what he was he was advocating. And he has there's videos of him on YouTube. People can watch the whole thing. He's very open about all of it. But it was confronted with macroeconomic instability. That's always been a problem in Myanmar. It goes back to the original sin, basically, of a government that was financing itself through printing money. So over the last 60 years, that has been the basically default response to, to money, uh, to financing government expenditure. Government has always tended to grab more of the resources than the country really has available. So it's been you know, a chronic problem just again and again and again. So getting on top of that, was objective number one. So before going to growth and doing the other good stuff, what you had to do was get control of the macro economy. And in that, it's been incredibly successful at doing it, incredibly unsuccessful at communicating it, which is a bit of a frustration for me. Um, So for instance, the budget deficit was halved in the first year of the the NLD government. Inflation, likewise, came down almost exactly by half in that first year. From what to what? Uh, from a peak of 16%, actually, just before they took office, and it's now about about 7%, uh, so slightly less than half. Always some issues with inflation numbers, of course, with uh, different items and so on, but the average, the, the proper CPI measure, is about 7%. Um, we've got on top of things like money printing. Um, <coughs> so that, uh, in order to avoid that original sin, if you like, that real source of macro instability, the government has not only very much trimmed the fiscal sales uh, in areas of recurrent expenditure, but have also brought into, uh, into play longer-term government financing to try and correct the problem. So, for instance, they've now got a competitive bond tender for the very first time, back in July last year, it was the first bond tender. Uh, even selling bonds to the central bank, of course, which we know is printing money, trying to create the incentives against that by making sure that central bank financing has a cost. And so yields on even central bank take-up of bonds is between 7 and 8%. It's about 95 by the way, in terms of the open tender for the public. So it's quite an attractive proposition, uh, me and my government debt, uh, w- w- once it's allowed to be bought by foreigners and so on. Um, so there's that aspect, but to lock it in for the longer term, they've even brought in a framework where the central bank is gradually going to be eased out of the funding story. So, for instance, this financial year, 40% of the deficit can be taken up by the central bank. Next year, it's 30. The year after, it's 20. The year after that, zero. So recurrent government expenditure cannot be financed by the central bank. 
If you're wondering why this is horrific, please check out our episode on monetary sovereignty where we interviewed Fidel Kaboob. It's very interesting because the coup government in Bolivia immediately got this strange IMF loan, which Luis Arce returned on day one uh, right after he got in power. And a lot of it is privatizing everything, sometimes even the water, like in Bolivia. So had she talked about her economic program, like, was she talking about privatization? Like, what was the code word, I guess, she used? And you can't outside say, oh, we're going to, like, let Westerners just extract everything. Like, what was she saying? Well, I think she was saying something along the lines of uh, where we need more foreign investment, something like that. Investment is what she would say. We need foreign investment from these countries. And we all know what that means. And, you know, th that's the difference between China, the Belt and Road Initiative, building actual physical, tangible infrastructure, and then this, uh, this, this very abstract uh, idea of Western investment. What does that mean? It means they're going to buy everything up. They're going to maximize profit over purpose and, and over the people. And, you know, they're going to they're going to run everything right into the ground, just like they're doing with their own economies. And if you look at what the U.S. is doing and they admit they cannot compete with the Belt and, Belt and Road Initiative, when you think of an army retreating, like an ancient army retreating, what would they do to the farmland to deny their enemy uh, the ability to use it, they would burn it, burn it. Yes. And that's what the U.S. is doing to Southeast Asia. They're trying to burn it. That's what they were doing in Hong Kong. These mobs here in Thailand, that's what they're trying to do. There was we have the high speed rail project ongoing right now, already under construction. Uh, the billionaire leader of the opposition here went to the United States. He toured the uh, Hyperloop uh, test track. It's like 500 meters long. And he said, we need to cancel Chinese high-speed rail and go with Hyperloop, which doesn't even exist really. And so this is what, this is what they're doing. This is the kind of stuff that the, these Western-backed opposition are doing. Another thing that the media always does, which is always false, which I've noticed, is the peaceful protesters. So can you talk a little bit about how the Myanmar protesters aren't very peaceful. <laughs> okay, well, now I don't think it's much of a secret, but when this all started, they tried to portray the, the, the protesters as peaceful. These protesters from these political groups were never peaceful. These were the same groups that would storm into Rohingya villages and slaughter the Rohingya and burn their businesses and their homes down and drive them into camps. This is the same group that was doing that. If you look into the protests, uh, you know, not as a couple of years ago, there was one. And then 1988, those were also very violent. If you if you really dig in and, and look. Oh, yeah. They hijacked a plane to India. I remember. Oh, yeah. Yes. That, well, I'm glad you brought that up because um, the guy who did that, mm -hmm. uh, he went on to get a, a grant from Open Society and the National Endowment for D Democracy for his own media platform, Mizama. And you will still see Mizama cited as a source by the Western media. So he's basically a, t a terrorist. <laughs> yes. Uh, and so, yeah, and he has and he's getting funded by why. But why should that surprise people? Because the U.S. funds terrorists all over the world. This is this is their actual to kind of slow down and go back. Uh, Joe Biden recently unveiled the Build Back Better World initiative. This is supposed to be the U.S. 
answer to the mm-hmm. Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, but it's a smokescreen. Their, their real plan is to just continue using terrorism, color revolution, uh, destabilizing countries, uh, attacking these projects, sabotaging. This is their actual plan for confronting the Belt and Road Initiative. And so that's why you see the, the absolute worst in each and every one of these countries approached by the U.S., given money, given support to create as much havoc as possible. This is their actual strategy for dealing with China. So, yeah, it's the free market, quote unquote. After World War II, when every country's industry was just bombed, the U.S. was like, free market, free market. But now the free market or whatever is coming back to bite them. And they're like, hey, we're going to change our mind. <laughs> yes, uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of very poorly planned, poorly ill-conceived strategies that these people were using to try to conquer the world. It didn't work. Uh, and But they're not. I don't think they have a plan B. I don't think they know what else to do. Mm-mm. And so this is what they're doing. This is what the British Empire did. They just kind of, they faded. They had they had these little outbursts and tantrums. Uh, and then they went away. And look, and look at them now. They're still kicking and screaming. So can we imagine how long the U.S. is going to carry on for? Yeah. So one thing that really frightened me was that these quote-unquote pro-democracy protesters were bombing schools. What was going on there? So from the very beginning, they were violent. They were attacking police. They were attacking soldiers. They were armed. They had they had machetes and Molotov cocktails. They were throwing bricks at the police. And this, this violence just continued to escalate. Uh, then uh, somehow, you know, somehow in quotes, they, they all ended up with war weapons and they started creating these so-called people's defense forces. But what were they doing? They just like you said, they were bombing schools. And this isn't this isn't like Myanmar's government accusing them of this or Russian or Chinese state media saying this. I saw it on AP. Yeah. And, and Reuters and then even the U.S. government funded opposition media in Myanmar admitted this. And they tried to spin it as much as possible. But, you know, it was like in Syria, there was a certain point where the terrorists were so out of control, you really couldn't cover it up. You can't cover it up in Myanmar. A lot of times these these, uh, opposition extremists, now they're absolute extremists, will just come out and openly say it. In their minds, they can justify bombing schools because they said that there's a national strike and if you're not joining it, then you're against them. You're part of the government. You're a collaborator. So in their mind, they justify bombing schools, shooting at schools. The, the military has to protect the schools. They have to protect the teachers and students on their way to school. The leaders of these people's defense forces openly tell the U.S.-funded opposition media that they are going to target government buildings. And they say, well, we don't want to kill civilians, so don't go. Don't go to the bank. Don't go to the electricity office. Don't. They're, they're saying if you didn't already join our strike, our, our nationwide strike, we're going to kill you if you go there. Just don't don't go there or or you'll die. It's not our fault. That's basically what they're saying. That's a preposterous thing to ask people. But it also sounds like it's like a typical contra gratuitous violence. Uh, I don't know if it's gratuitous, but it's just like over the top violence like they did in Venezuela when they bombed the daycare center or whatever. Um, but when you read the news reports, they're always vague about how the violence happened. But then if you read it carefully, it's because of these um, protesters. 
So do the protesters have a strategy other than just like wreaking havoc? Or do you fear a civil war, a balkanization project? Like, what do you fear? I think that that could be a possibility. What, what I fear is, and you see them kind of setting this up, uh, it's not going to be these, these people's defense forces or these, these kids getting trained and then sent back. Uh, they're, they're just going to create havoc. What, what people should be looking for are these ethnic arms groups that have been around for decades, that the U.S. and British have been arming and backing and training for decades. There is uh, this group called the Free Burma Rangers, and they, they masquerade as some sort of Christian group going in and, and giving them medical and they're teaching them how to read maps and how to do this and that pretty much everything except fire weapons or, and bringing them in weapons. They do everything except that. But, but when you watch their videos, you see them on armed patrols with them and you see them firing weapons and they have teams working with every major ethnic armed group in Myanmar. And Free Burma Rangers is in contact with the U.S. Embassy in Myanmar and with the U.S. consulate in Chiang Mai in northern Thailand. Uh, the guy who runs it, David Eubank, he actually is based in Thailand and he crosses back and forth over the border. He is actually arrested by the Thai government at one point uh, because I don't, I don't think they appreciate him using Thailand as a base to destabilize their neighbor. This is what they're doing already. And we don't, we don't know when, when they're doing clandestine support for these armed groups, we don't know until they admit it, but it's, it's clear that that's one possibility. Using the Syrian model where they're training and arming and equipping the militants, and then maybe even providing some sort of direct military support. I don't know. That, that's the thing that we have to watch out for and look out for. They're trying to create these fake human rights monitoring groups, just like they did in Libya and Syria, to kind of uh, ratchet up the war propaganda, to kind of pave the way to justifying wider intervention by the West. And I don't know how far that intervention will go. That's very... I, I wish I could say I was surprised, but I'm not. Um, this is their typical playbook. And I started getting suspicious when they started targeting only Chinese factory, Chinese-owned factories. And I'm like, eh, this sounds weird. So in one of your sh YouTube series, you said that the military it has like one year to kind of establish order. And then they usually hand over back to a civilian government. What's going on there? I find that. Uh, that 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 seems very unlikely to happen at this point. Uh, if they do, it's not going to be, you know, the National League for Democracy and Aung San Suu Kyi will not or should not be part of any future election. They really need to get that under control or it's just going to spiral out of control again. Uh, what, I, I just want to touch on one thing. You were talking about them attacking Chinese factories. Mm -hmm. They have, quote unquote, ministers in this fake national unity government that they set up this government in exile or this government in the jungle, wh wherever it is. Uh, and if you follow their quote unquote ministers on social media, they are openly anti-China. They are openly anti-China. They say that the Chinese government is, is one of their enemies. It's a, it's, a, it's a dictatorship that they have to resist. And they, they, they openly support the protesters in Thailand and vice versa, and also the U.S.-backed opposition in Hong Kong and vice versa. So uh, there's one, her name is E. 
Tinsar Mang, and she's the Deputy Minister of Women, Youths, and Children's Affairs. And you just go, go to her, her Twitter account and just see the kind of things she said about China. She's technically part of this, whatever this national unity government is. So a deputy minister that is pretty, pretty high up. Uh, and that seems to be their official stance. So this should give an idea to people about how sincere Aung San Suu Kyi and the people around her were about doing business with China and, and what their true colors really are and, and what their true intentions were for Myanmar. In the U.S. media, they're claiming that allegedly their crackdown happened because some radio thingy, I don't, it doesn't even matter. But what is the actual charge that they were arrested for? I, I, I honestly, I don't know. And this is, this is something that Myanmar's government needs to fix. Actually, a lot of governments in this region need to fix their information game because it is so hard to find their point of view on anything. They need to learn from Russia and <laughs> get an RT. Exactly. I've often said that between Russia and China, they export weapons. Why don't they export uh, the means to defend yourself in an information war? Mm-hmm. You know, like export the social media networks that you need to displace Facebook and Twitter and YouTube in your information space. Uh, oh, yeah. VK is fantastic. And I also use Weibo. And yeah. Exactly. You have to think of your uh, of a nation's information space, just like their airspace, their shores, their land borders. If you have Facebook and Twitter and YouTube completely dominating your information space, do, you know, that is that is so dangerous. It would be like having foreign uh, police on your streets, policing your streets and, and using their laws, not your laws. This is the exact same thing with Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. And we, we, we know that they openly work with the U.S. State Department on many things, including backing these, these sort of opposition groups when they, when they want them to get back into power. Uh, they, they were doing it here in Thailand. They were doing it in uh, all, all across the, the Arab Spring from 2011 onward. And now they're doing it in Myanmar or trying to. Yeah, your Twitter account got <laughs> deleted and my Facebook. Yes, I'm sorry about that. And you're not the only one. I mean, I can even show you this. It's really funny because in Russia, at least, there's this radio something, radio. It's a, I just call it fascist radio. I don't know. I can't remember the. It's like Radio Fever Europe for Russia. You know what I'm talking about? Yes, yes. Uh, I can't think of what the name is. If you said it, I probably know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's funny because even they had an article. So Russia shut down Twitter for a little while. And then in their article, it's comical. You check and it's because somebody, Twitter did not delete some child porn on it. The U.S. Um, shut down some Russian accounts on Twitter and that was because they spoke ill of NATO. And I'm like, those are not equivalent. <laughs> yeah, they're not. Yeah, not not at all. Not at all. And I mean, I never thought for a moment that Twitter or Facebook and I have a channel on YouTube. I don't think for a moment that they're going to play fair. I'm there because that's where everyone else is. And I want to get the message out to as many people as possible before they shut me down. I work on alternatives. I have my my website, which is I had my my work on Blogger for the longest time, but I'm just thinking, you know, if Google were to shut down my accounts because of YouTube, my blog will be gone. So I have this website hosted outside the US. So people have to protect themselves, but I I encourage people to go to where people are and need to hear this information. 
if you're on VK or you're on Chinese social media, you're preaching to the choir. They all already agree. Uh, we need people to hear this who are receptive to the message, but might might just never have heard this point of view before. And that, that happens a lot, actually, uh, where, where you're winning over people by just showing them what's going on. And especially me, I use uh, the Western media's own articles. I don't, I don't use Russian or Chinese media. I use Reuters. I show them where they say in the article that they're blowing up schools. Uh, how, how can you argue that if, if you're a, a Westerner and you believe and trust the Western media for some reason, well, your Western media is even saying it. It, it makes it very hard for them to argue. So what is your website so people can go to it? And I will include a link to your YouTube channel because it was very good. I checked a lot of your videos about Myanmar and Thailand, and I had, I had not connected those two in my mind until I listened to you. <laughs> Thailand is tricky because a lot of people, especially people on the left, uh, sometimes they don't, uh, uh, and it's human nature, but sometimes they don't do due diligence in research. They see uh, a complex political crisis in a, in a country they're not familiar with. So they kind of do a very superficial, almost ideological approach where they look at it and they're like, okay, who are the two sides? Oh, the head of the government is uh, Prime Minister Paiute. He's a former general. That sounds kind of fascist to me. Oh, they have a constitutional monarchy. Well, that I, that's definitely not me. I'm, I'm a leftist. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to side with the lefties in Thailand. And the, the opposition here, they do kind of sing a, a, a tune that sounds socialist, sometimes communist. They have like uh, former members of the Communist Party of Thailand, uh, which is a whole nother story. And th th not a real serious communist movement. Let's just, that's that's the whole, I have a whole video on that. Two people can check that out. Oh yeah, it's like the Philippines party that just kind of bombs random places. <laughs> yeah, well, well, yeah, it was, I, I'm pretty sure it was kind of like, you know, the 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 mujahideen fighting the infidels but they're funded and armed by the infidels it's kind of like that where yeah and during that time period there were supposed communist groups all fighting each other so how is that happening if they're all real you know if they're all on the same page how is that happening because there was a lot more to the story but if you look at the opposition and you see uh, and you want to take the anti-imperialist stance, who is the U.S. funding? Who's the NED funding in Thailand? It's the opposition out in the streets trying to take down the Thai military, take down the Thai monarchy. The Thai monarchy is not a Western monarchy. Uh, so a lot of people make that mistake and they try to compare it with a Western monarchy. Uh, Western monarchies presided over empires stretching out beyond their borders. The Thai monarchy spent centuries defending Thailand against those empires. So it's a Thailand was not colonized like India ever, right? Never. Yeah, never. And it was specifically because the monarchy was able to unite Thai people. They were never able to find the same sort of fault lines they found in places like Myanmar or Malaysia or Cambodia or Laos. They were never able to find those fault lines and exploit them in Thailand. So Thailand was in the middle they played these massive powers off against each other. Plus, they had a strong, unified country. This is what helped them weather it. And that's why they're attacking the monarchy today, because the monarchy still serves that purpose in Thai society. And if they want to burn Thailand to the ground with the rest of Southeast Asia and deny China prosperous partners to rise together up with, uh, that's what they need to do. They need to take out the source of strength in, in places like Thailand. In Thailand, it's the Thai monarchy. 
the military and other institutions, indigenous institutions. Well, thank you so much for coming, and I hope we can have you back again. This was very illuminating because it confirmed every suspicion I had about, like, I'm a pretty decent coup spotter, so, uh, like, I get red flags, so I'll stay silent when I get red flags in my head until I find evidence, but it really helped me kind of figure out where to look for and what to look for, and your articles are fantastic in your website, which is it's very informative. So thank you so much. And uh, hopefully you can get on a social media platform that won't censor <laughs> you eventually. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you for having me. I, I really enjoyed this and I, I will come back anytime. Thank you very much. Well, have a wonderful time and have a good what time. Is it over there? It's, uh, it's 7, 720. Oh, okay. So, okay. Late. Well, I it's hope fine. you have a good yeah. rest of the evening. So thank you so much. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank bye. you very much. Bye. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show. 